This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Mia. And I'm Scott. And we're culture scholars who believe that mixed race prejudice is deeply illogical. Today we are joined by our first ever guest, Dr. Tim Staines. Tim is a sessional lecturer in the Gender and Cultural Studies Department at the University of Sydney. Tim, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I just completed my PhD in, uh, well, I graduated in May. My topic was intercultural engagement with Japan in contemporary Australian literature, cinema, and theatre. Broadly, I'm interested in Asian-Australian studies and mixed-race studies, and um, I'm looking to do more research into mixed-race people in Okinawa, Japan. Wonderful. So speaking of mixed-race, Tim, uh, we've hijacked you for this episode today. Um, So did you want to elaborate specifically on today's themes? Yeah, so we're going to be talking about race, mixed race, and Orientalism in sci-fi and fantasy, specifically Lord of the Rings and Star Trek, the original series, and Voyager. Um, I guess we are thinking about what, wa- in what ways sci-fi and fantasy uh, think about race, what ways they portray race, and what ways of thinking or rethinking um, race they might offer us. So on that note, uh, there's going to be some pretty major spoilers for both classic Star Trek and Star Trek Voyager in today's episode. There'll be some minor Lord of the Rings spoilers, mostly just world building. And if we talk about anything else, that's also going to be world building. So if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, this isn't really going to massively spoil you. So on the topic of Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings seems like an interesting place for us to begin uh, because it's clearly... A separate world. It's a fantasy world, but there are parallels to our world as well. And I think that that kind of closeness, but still clearly fantasy context makes it a really interesting subject for analysis. Uh, so to begin with, we want to look at how Lord of the Rings, and keep in mind that Lord of the Rings is basically, in many ways, the the original epic fantasy text. There are a couple of other ones that tie in a little bit, but it is really one of those major starts to the genre. Um, So we want to look at how race is portrayed both literally and metaphorically throughout this book slash series, depending on how you think of it. (laughs) So Lord of the Rings, obviously by J.R. Tolkien. Um, The story introduces us to multiple races. So we have elves, men, dwarves, hobbits, orcs, ants, trolls, Nazgul, and some other ones as well that probably are a bit more minor, not worth mentioning here. Um... But what I find really interesting is the geopolitical layout of Middle-earth in Lord of the Rings, because there's a very big difference between the inhabitants of the North and the West compared to the South and more specifically the East or the Southeast, uh, which is Mordor, Mordor otherwise known as the Blackland or the Land of Shadow. So Lord of the Rings sees our protagonist Frodo and also his companion Sam travel to Mordor uh, on their quest, which sees them travelling literally into this unknown land. We are positioned in 
um, Frodo's perspective most of the time. So we know what Frodo knows about Mordor, which is not that much. It's mostly kind of told through either Gandalf or some of the other people he meets along the way, giving him little snippets. And obviously he's very coloured by their perspectives of Mordor. So towards the beginning, really all we know is that it's a dark place. Now, when we're thinking about Lord of the Rings as a text, it is important to situate that text in the time period that it was written. Um, So Tolkien was writing throughout World War II and early Cold War period. And this is a time where the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc were uh, this looming sort of semi-known threat for a lot of Western society. So writing in this time period and also for readers during this time period, I think it was published in the 50s, the text would immediately have conjured uh, very specific images to Western audiences. Um, So having Mordor as this dark land of the East would have conjured images of Eastern Europe specifically for a lot of readers. Um, And then also we have the other side of it, which many critics have also kind of um, made comparisons with uh, between Mordor and Hitler's Germany, particularly with the kind of industrial aspects of Mordor. Um, But it is interesting that Tolkien has been on record as saying that he really hates when people analyse his work as this allegorical piece. Conversely, he's also said that uh, Middle-earth is or should be seen as a a potential kind of alternate history for our Earth, which means that really when we look at these representations, they're not coincidental. They are based in real-world fact or uh, certainly interpretations of fact. So, Scott, how do you reconcile, first of all, these two very seemingly opposite ideas and also should we care (laughs) (laughs) i get the sense because tolkien has actually written essays on allegory and stuff as well that when he opposes the idea that his work particularly the lord of rings is allegorical in nature he's opposing the idea that he's making a particular statement about the world we live in um and the recent world history that he experienced um uh, which which I can kind of understand. Like I, I understand that as an author, he may be opposed to this idea that his grand epic fantasy that he's been working on for decades upon decades is just about re, like, metaphorizing world conflicts. Mm. Um, to him, it's probably more than that. It's more of a labor of love and more of a world building exercise. Um, on the other hand, definitely the author. So, I mean, at the same time. It is very difficult to read Lord of the Rings and even The Hobbit, which I've read recently, and not um, have certain you know phenomena in mind. Like so, orc slash goblin culture, particularly in The Hobbit, is distinctly framed as being this deeply industrial culture, and it's very difficult to separate out that idea with the fact that they're pretty much homogeneously terrible. Mm. Um, and I think. Uh, in terms of creative writing, there's also this kind of inseparability between what we experience and how that influences what we write and the stories that we tell. It's it's kind of like you cannot uh, separate out uh, those two creative impulses. So in a way, I think it's perfectly valid to read Tolkien's work as something that is touched by the real world experiences that he saw firsthand. Um, 
But at the same time, I mean, it's I think it's perfectly valid for the author to say that his intention was not that the story be read purely in that sense. As for the second part of your question, should we care? Um, so there's this theory about the death of the author and stuff. And if this theory kind of espouses that if a reader can see certain things in the text, so if there's certain um, aspects that they can point to as evidence in a text to validate a particular kind of reading of it, it's, an, it's entirely valid. And I believe that's true for Lord of the Rings as it is for anything that's written by anyone. Uh, I think one of the things he was trying to do was to um, create a new kind of mythology for uh, England um, that he thought what didn't exist and that part of his, you know, it's part of this kind of idea that all these other cultures have this kind of mythological history and England didn't. And so I guess that would contribute to one of the reasons why he found the allegory um, sort of way of reading his work probably irritating because he wasn't he was trying to you know create a mythological kind of past rather than you know comment on real real life politics yeah and for anyone who's read the Silmarillion as I have and that's some time in my life I'm never <laughs> going to get back uh, there's definitely a mythological aspect to his writing um that, that was a bit mean, but it, it's it's a hard read. <laughs> yeah. Look, there's a whole chapter of the Silmarillion that's just like that chapter from the Bible where yeah. it's just such and such begot such and such. Yeah. And he invites it upon himself, <laughs> is what I'm saying. You could admire it without necessarily enjoying reading it. <laughs> I was lazy and read like encyclopedia things, which is like <laughs> I could just go to, oh, yeah, this part of the Silmarillion and I'll just give a brief explanation. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely a, a good approach for it. Um, and, you know, Scott, you mentioned some of his essays. I've read some of the essays as well. And he does, like, clearly he's an author who cares a lot about the importance of literature and the effects that has. So, yes, I agree that he shouldn't be read as someone who was consciously trying to allegorically present the real world. But you know, he his experiences are definitely going to be present in there, and there's a lot for us to read from that. So, I also want to bring up um, on a similar kind of topic, and this probably relates more to the visual media that has come out of um, the book, The Lord of the Rings, so the film, video games, that kind of thing. So, I was reading an article uh, based on the games of Lord of the Rings called Racial Logics Franchising and Video Game Genres The Lord of the Rings by Helen Young. And Young talks about how when audiences criticise the racial logics that are presented in this media, um, such as, for example, the good people of the North in Lord of the Rings are all white, the argument that generally comes back from fans is that, well, this game was based on a real life or was influenced by this real life context, which is in this case medieval England and um, because it's modelled off that and in that context there hadn't been the same kind of colonisation that had taken place, there wouldn't be this ethnic diversity, so it doesn't make sense for there to be people who are non-white, um, which partially is not exactly true. But also, um, I don't know, there's, there's a lot to that. There's that kind of... I don't even know the word to describe it, like this need to defend something based on the influences and the the origins of where a lot of this came from. So 
And you see the same thing with um, The Witcher is a big example. I've seen a lot of people defend how white the game The Witcher is based on the fact that it's from a book series which is influenced by um, Scandinavian culture. Um, Tim, how do you feel about this argument? Yeah, um, I did a bit of research assistant work for Helen back in the day and when she was looking at some of these topics around orcs especially. And uh, I think, you know, when I spoke to her about this, I, she, I think she was very quick to point out how this sort of myth that there weren't any black people was false and how that there, there is evidence of ethnic and racial diversity within medieval times. Um, and so I think, <coughs> from what I remember, she thought that this kind of narrative of the whiteness of medieval cultures was a kind of revisionist narrative from the Enlightenment period that wanted to mythologize the Middle... Uh, uh, sorry, not the Middle Earth, but the um, Middle Ages as a kind of, you know, um, homogenous kind of um, origin for the what were then sort of the contemporary <coughs> um, European identities. So... I think that's interesting to take into account. And a lot of other arguments that people provide is that, um, you know, it's it's not a real world. You know, the the author should be able to do whatever they want to do. Um, you know, we have, you know, we shouldn't be criticizing, you know, because it's not reality. Um, and I don't know, I think, yeah, I guess I think that this this idea um, because of this idea that the Middle Ages was, you know, white, because this idea is, I, I think, debunked, um, I don't think that really holds true um, when thinking about uh, why fantasy is often uh, meant to be racially homogenous. But the other thing that I think that's interesting about gaming and um, these ideas of race, which um, might be a little bit of a a little bit off topic, but is the idea that, you know, for for computer games or for role-playing games where you can play as an orc, um, a lot of people enjoy role-playing as an orc, that an orc position can be something that is not totally abject. It's something that actually people kind of get into because they're the bad guys or whatever it might be. So it, I think that's kind of interesting in that um, while, you know, the sort of the orcs that are, are red as black might be seen as the you know um, this kind of abject other. Actually, there's a lot of space for identification with them too within within games and potentially within um, novels as well. So I think that that also kind of problematizes that sort of binary that we get that gets set up. Um, you know, when we assume that fantasy is is all about whiteness. Mm. And of course, without again going too far into this, the the key difference with role playing games is this is literally a skin that you put on and then mm. take off again when the game shuts down. This mm. isn't mm. your life from now on. Um, and there was an example I can't remember what the name of the game was, but there was an example of a game that came out I think a few years ago where you were randomly it was like you, you played as humans and you were randomly assigned an ethnicity. And people were not happy about the fact that they didn't get to choose their ethnicity. I'm like, well, that's real life. <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So we've got this kind of geopolitical world building happening in Lord of the Rings, which I think we can all, at least all agree that 
um, it stems in part from the cultural influences of, of the time that Tolkien was writing, if not being explicitly based on that. Um, so then we've got to, got to get into the other idea of um, the other constructed as this kind of cultural other and the the way that that's done. So whenever we get into this idea of this cultural other or ethnic other, um, particularly looking at something like Lord of the Rings, which, as you'll see soon, um, has some very interesting racial markers that are used uh, in descriptions of different races, um, we inevitably have to look at Orientalism. And to introduce Orientalism, I want to start with a quote by Edward Said, which is, a very large mass of writers, among who are poets, novelists, philosophers, political theorists, economists, and imperial administrators, have accepted the basic distinction between East and West as the starting point for elaborate accounts concerning the Orient, its people, customs, mind, destiny, and so on. Now, the three of us, I'm probably the least versed on the idea of Orientalism, so I might throw over to one of you two to talk a little bit more about what Orientalism is in basic terms. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, so that quote highlights this kind of sort of divide between East and West that is constructed, um, especially, you know, from Saeed's point of view, especially from the West, but it definitely happens from the East too, um, where a particular kind of traits um, and behaviours and customs are assigned to the East. And I guess one of the main points about this that Saeed's trying to make is that these aren't necessarily kind of real attributes that are, are based on fact, that these are fantasies where the East get, um, gets... Well, the West projects onto the East all sorts of um, ideas about their difference, their otherness. Um, and um, it... it the East, therefore, stands in for a particular fantasy around otherness, sometimes a fetishization of otherness. And also for Said, the, the East is the underside of the Western um, um, consciousness. It's the unconscious um, of the West. Everything that is repressed in the West gets projected onto the East so that the East often becomes perverted. Um, it becomes a sort of domain where there's a lot of kind of um, sexualization that happens because a proper Western subject is not allowed to um, be perverted or have kind of, you know, um, strong sexual desires. <coughs> it often gets, you know, there are there's violence and there's degeneracy um, in the East because these are the things that um, the West isn't allowed to be. So it's And if we think about, you mentioned that Mordor can be described as the land of shadow. Um, we could also think about the East as the shadow side of the West as well. All the things that are underneath that aren't allowed to be um, get sort of projected onto the East then. Yeah, so on that topic, when we look at Lord of the Rings, the people from the West and the North are generally pale-skinned and they're very frequently associated with things like sunlight and nature. In a dream, I saw the eastern sky grow dark, but in the west a pale light lingered. A voice was crying, your doom is near at hand. Isildur's bane is found. Um, the light is a big thing. You actually see when we look at people from the east, um, sorry, races from the east specifically, a lot of them, like the orcs, can't actually tolerate sunlight. Um, so they're inherently associated with darkness. Um, but we also get some really interesting physical descriptions when we look at these races in Lord of the Rings. So, for example, the orcs, some of the probably more interesting 
um, racial markers that the orcs have are their dark skin, their flat noses and their slant eyes. So I think the orc really can be seen as um, this constructed Asian other or probably more specifically a Mongolian other if we're thinking about the time that Tolkien was writing and some of those images that would have been brought up. Um, And most of the descriptions we get of creatures and races from the East are closely uh, aligned with a post-colonial imagined other. But we don't just have other races who are living in the East. We also have men who have aligned themselves with Sauron and with the dark side. Um, It's a Star Wars thing, but whatever. (laughs) Um, So we have men from the East who are known as Easterlings. Now, we were discussing this in the book. I think it's the same in the film as well. You actually don't hear any of them speak. So there are no important individual members of this group like you see with, um, you know, men from the West and also elves and hobbits and dwarves. Um, They're this big mass and we're not meant to really understand their perspective. They're just supposed to be this monolithic group. Now, early costume design concepts for Easterlings in the Peter Jackson films were very Arab-inspired. They were wearing turbans, um, and Peter Jackson didn't like this. He didn't want the costumes to be too closely mirroring real-life cultures. So the costume they ended up going with was one that was clearly very heavily inspired by samurai armour. Um but then we have the enemies from the south, who are often known as the Southrons or the Haradrim. Um, and the Haradrim, who were described as having dark faces, black eyes and long black hair and gold rings in their ears, um, do have a very Middle Eastern Arab aesthetic to their costumes. Um, they use a scimitar as their weapon, which is a Middle Eastern blade. They dress in red with yellow and black shields. They ride mumakil in battle, which are essentially these huge war elephants. So again, we're getting these little elements of a very generic, monolithic um, Eastern and Middle Eastern culture, as would have been understood by many Western readers at the time. And one thing I found really interesting when I was looking into this is when I was trying to look up the Haradrim costumes... Um, You can see a lot of LARP or like just kind of cosplay costumes online. And there were several sites which had costumes that were literally labeled Arab slash Haradrim. So we can see that these are basically these just two interchangeable ideas, the Arab and the Haradrim from Lord of the Rings, at least when it comes to people recreating the costumes for cosplay and LARP. Now, most fantasy shows do use real life cultures when they design their costumes, Um, which is what makes them so interesting and intricate. The the costume designers or good costume designers will go into historical cultures and use that as their inspiration. So, Scott, how did you see something like this comparing against, for example, Game of Thrones costume design? Yeah, so with uh, the HBO series Game of Thrones, I think it, in many cases it is still anchored in what George R. R. Martin used as influences when describing a number of these different cultures in his epic fantasy. So when you think about the Dothraki in the East, they are definitely inspired by um, Mongolian ancient culture as well as Native American um, Indians and stuff. So in that respect, it still sort of perpetuates this idea of the East with Eastern cultures in real life. 
Um, but in, in the main sort of landscape where all this drama takes place in Westeros, we do have some interesting examples in the show that take a lot of what would typically be considered Orientalist or Eastern uh, Co- uh, costuming design influences and they are interposed on what in the in the fantasy world of Game of Thrones is the West. Um, so House Lannister in particular is interesting. Being the major house from the westernmost part of Westeros, their, their armor is very heavily inspired by um, samurai armor, uh, particularly the helmets and the way they open up as well as, as, well as the, um, what do you call the torso armor? Mm, breastplate? Let's go breastplate. <laughs> <laughs> but also um, in the south with, uh, with the Dornish culture, um, uh, a lot of the, the sort of nameless characters that follow all the major, you know, the, the royal houses there, um, they do wear turban-like um, headdresses as well. Mm. And so this is part of, um, part of the Western hemisphere, so to speak, of um, A Song of Ice and Fire and the Game of Thrones, but it's also, I mean, Dornish culture is interesting because it does have those historical influences because a lot of those cultures did actually emigrate over, right? So it is bringing those Eastern influences over into this sort of what would probably be an amalgam for Mediterranean ancient cultures. Um, but in the end, they, um, the South in Westeros is still considered part of the West in that sort of in the sort of geopolitics of uh, Game of Thrones. So um, I don't really have a conclusion on what this actually means. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of like, here's a case where it re-perpetuates it, here's a case where it doesn't. So I am curious what you guys do think about those particular examples. Yeah, I mean, they're good comparisons because Martin and Tolkien are both famously writers who put so much thought not just into the story you're reading but all of the backstory that leads up to that story Um, so there's always a reason for something it's never just kind of an arbitrary decision that they just go oh yeah it'll be it'll look like this because that kind of seems cool um i guess tim i could ask you (laughs) one of the more difficult questions we'll probably be asking this episode which is what could a more responsible use of cultural and historical influences um look like or how could that be employed by costume designers well this is a difficult question because I'm not really sure that there's a a clear script for what is responsible um, use of cultural products like this and I think that one of the difficulties that we face is that when we see costuming or we see um, the use of other sort of cultural um, behaviors on screen or on a stage or whatever it might be, we often don't see the kind of research and work that goes into um, the decisions that people make. So I think that um, some of the work that I've looked into this, there were some early kind of plays um, that were uh, using, I can't even remember the names, but the that were using, say, um, Hindu kind of narratives and, you know, there were sort of um, white American um, playwrights who would who would use these stories and um, stage them and use, you know, um, you know, Indian costuming and so on and so forth. And a lot of people were saying this is cultural appropriation because, you know, you've just taken this culture and you've used it for your own gain. But what we don't see is the incredible amount of 
um, collaboration and research that those people put into putting together something like that, which muddies the ground. I'm not necessarily trying to make an argument for or against the cultural appropriation and examples like that, but it muddies the ground when you think about the collaboration that goes into it, which is really what you want, I think, from from an issue like this. You want people to talk to people across cultures. You want there to be negotiations around that. You want there to be an exchange of knowledge. And um, sometimes that does happen. And what we might see on the screen um, effaces all of those things. So, and in this case, and sometimes the cases of cultural appropriation don't have clear cut colonial dynamics as well between an oppressive colonizer and (coughs) an oppressed colonized person or culture. So, um, <coughs> um, so when we look at these particular costumes, like the the Haradrim um, costumes, for example, uh, I don't know. Is 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 um, is Peter Jackson trying to? You know, if if some of the costumes, because he says he didn't want them to be too lifelike, but obviously some of them are, as you say. <laughs> and I guess one of the things is that is he trying to kind of appropriate culture's dress, or is he trying to draw connections that um, position us as an audience to um, think about uh, what are the the earth racial kind of um, crossovers that we can see. Uh, What are the ways in which Tolkien um, is uh, trying to get us to think about race um, on Earth in our current day? Um, Is he trying to create resonances so that we can um, feel, maybe not on a conscious level, some of the kind of racial cultural implications of the way that the different races are positioned um, within Lord of the Rings too. So you could, I mean, you could say that he's appropriating the costumes or you could say that um, he's using them as a way to create particular resonances that might be sort of thought-provoking. They'll have affects that are certainly maybe racial, you know, racially problematic, but sometimes they might just... Um, get the audience to think about uh, how there might be some other kind of racial narrative within this story. Yeah, I mean, I guess for myself the main things that don't work for me in Tolkien's case, which do work in something like Game of Thrones, is first of all, you've got the people from the North and the West who, when you look at their armour, it's very um, medieval English or Nordic and then you've got the East and the South, which is very um, Eastern, Middle Eastern in their influences, and it's a very clear-cut example, whereas there is a little bit of a mixture in um, Game of Thrones. Not a huge amount, but there's at least it's not quite as clear-cut as the good guys wear British and Nordic costume and the bad guys wear Eastern and Middle Eastern <laughs> costume. Mm, yeah. um, but even that would be okay if we just got Haradrim and Eastlings talking in a sympathetic way mm-hmm. at any point in the entire mm. uh, either film series or, um, you know, in the, in the books. If we got to know a little bit about them and could empathise slightly with them, then at least you could make the argument that, yeah, there are those kind of... Um, it, it's being done on purpose. You are supposed to kind of subconsciously be associating with these groups, with particular mm. groups in real life, but then it needs to complicate your preconceived ideas about those groups for it to be purposeful and meaningful. 
that's my take anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is interesting, like, to think about why they don't have a voice and what the function, what function they play. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure why they wouldn't, why Tolkien wouldn't be interested in giving them a voice because they, because they don't seem to come forward as a clear, a clear kind of specter in the way that you know the orcs do. Oh, I just want to point out that we are talking about the same author who, in The Hobbit, didn't even have had one named female character who didn't appear <laughs> in the entire book. And even just in crowded scenes, you know, in, like, village squares and stuff, there's still no explicit reference to even just any woman whatsoever in that text. So mm. in terms... In, in that case, I think Loring's <laughs> is still a step up in terms of those representational mm. uh, needs. But at the same time, it's clearly not something he was really sensitive towards or just didn't think too deeply about... Uh, to integrate into his storytelling. Mm. And, yeah, but even as a kind of... as a kind of evil presence that could be, you know, (laughs) depicted in a sort of problematic way in which the orcs are, it's interesting that he he didn't even want to do that. Like, he didn't even want to sort of demonise the Easterlings um, either. He just had them sort of in the background. Yeah. Mm. So the the people who ally themselves with... Um, Sauron also speak the black speech, which gets described in the book as an abominable language. Never before has any voice uttered the words of that tongue here in Imladris. Do not ask your pardon. Master Elrond, for the black speech of Mordor may yet be heard in every corner of the West. The ring is altogether evil. And I find it funny, the syntax, and keeping in mind that Tolkien was a linguist, like he he had this huge background, he knew what he was doing. Uh, The syntax is very similar to Turkish and Mongolic languages. (laughs) So I think we really can see the Easterlings in the Haradrim as a melange of Russian, African, Middle Eastern and Asian cultures, which isn't hugely different to how Western society would have kind of viewed those real-life counterparts at that time. So, yeah, we, we, we do see them kind of as a homogenous group, and I think that's really why we're not getting their mm. perspectives as much, because mm. that wasn't important to the story and it wasn't important to the audience. So speaking of that, homogeneity, we then get a couple of interesting examples of where that homogeneity gets muddied or evolves throughout the story. So orcs are a really interesting example. We don't get any clear-cut explanations to um, where orcs have come from, but there is speculation in the books that they were bred from elves and had become corrupt, uh, which is a very interesting concept of a whole race of humanoid peoples as being inherently corrupt. Um, and then we have the Urukai, which I find really interesting, which are believed to have been, I think one of, I think maybe Treebeard might speculate this. Someone kind of brings it up as a possible thing that happened where Saruman crossbred orcs and men, um, specifically to kind of take the best aspects of both. In particular, he wanted orcs that could tolerate sunlight, which was a really important I guess, aspect of the war, being able to fight during the day. So we've got the Urukai. Um, another interesting example of kind of this abomination 
is um, Gollum and Smeagol, which you don't, certainly throughout The Hobbit, you don't really know much about the origins of Gollum so much. But we find out a little bit when we get to Lord of the Rings when Gandalf tells Frodo that um, Smeagol was once a hobbit. Um, and Frodo doesn't accept this at first. He finds this idea loathsome um, and he can't believe someone like Gollum could possibly have once been a hobbit. So these examples of Urukai and orcs and uh, Gollum show this idea or, or this theme of a fear of miscegenation, which is essentially the mixing of races. Now, I do want to add a qualifier here when we're talking about the term miscegenation. It's not really a term that's used so much these days as it was in the past, uh, mostly because miscegenation implies an inherent um, biological um, origin of racial groups of humans, which is not accurate at all. Um, but in the case of Lord of the Rings and also Star Trek, which we'll be talking about later, it, it is actual races. So I think that is an appropriate term to be using here. Um, but Tim, what are your thoughts on miscegenation in Lord of the Rings? Yeah, I think um, the, the the example that you gave of Saruman's Urukai um, is interesting. The way that they, the miscegenation is... I mean, the miscegenation is often... The fear of miscegenation is often because it sort of pollutes the purity of, say, like the, a white race, for example, a, a racially homogenous kind of race. <clears throat> but... Um, I also think what is interesting about miscegenation in this book is how constructed it is, how, um, you know, how how Saruman can sort of just forcibly sort of breed orcs and men, um, and and but also the ways in which the orcs themselves are lapsed elves, right? And they 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 are they're corrupted elves. So there is this kind of continuum between an elf and an orc in terms of race. So they represent the threat of changing race in a sense. They represent the threat that you could become another race, that you could become different. And it's the same with Smeagol, right? Smeagol's some kind of hobbit, and he becomes some other creature because of the ring, because of evil, because of difference of some kind. And I think that's an interesting anxiety there too. It's not... It's The, the, the lie is that they are these, um, these kind of like biologically uh, uh, separate kind of races um, and this is a lie that colonialism wants to tell itself and miscegenation is part of that that there are these distinct races that must not mix but actually um, the, the, the underlying anxiety is the knowledge that race is not distinct race is something that can be mixed race is something um, you can change your um, uh, your loyalty to races you can change your identity you know culturally sometimes racially right people you know for example I'm thinking of who was it was it Flaubert I think who went to he's the kind of like classic orientalist for Said. Mm. Flaubert mm. lived in uh Egypt for a long time and he notoriously sort of became Egyptian he had an Egyptian name he would be quite tanned he would wear Egyptian clothes right and so it's the Lindsay Lohan of <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly of his time and so he 
he represents, as long as these other figures, this idea that you can slip into becoming another race. You can slip into becoming one of them. Um, and I think that's such an interesting anxiety that you need to police your identity for the threat um, that you could become something else. Yeah. Um, so finally, on the topic of Lord of the Rings, we've spoken a lot about the the themes of darkness and the themes of light. So we have darkness is bad, light is good. It's very kind of <laughs> simplistic um, motifs that are, are seen throughout Lord of the Rings. But we've got this really clear outlier, which is Saruman. Uh, and Tim, you had some thoughts on Saruman. Uh, yeah, so I have to admit that as I was in, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with Saruman, and I would go on um, like internet roleplay forums, and I would be a wizard and be really kind of like you know um, arrogant, and I would you know play this kind of arrogant um, sort of wizard character and get kicks out of it, and and I also. Something about this sort of dark sorcerer character really appealed to me, and I, I remember also, um, <clears throat> I remember also um, feeling a lot of affinity with Jafar from Aladdin as well. You know, when he becomes that kind of evil sorcerer, yep. I was like, if I had um, the lamp, I would become Jafar. Do you know? And so, <coughs> I um. Yeah, so I was obsessed with Saruman. I was obs- I would obsess over like being able to do his voice. So do you want to hear my Saruman impression? I would impression? love to hear your Saruman impression. <clears throat> your love of the halfling's leaf has clearly slowed your mind. Time. What time do you think we have? Yeah, so I would do this in front of the <laughs> oh mirror. <laughs> that is so much better than my voice. <laughs> I was so obsessed with him, and I don't know what. Well, I, I have a little. I had a little think about what it is that I'm obsessed with about him. It's and we, you know, we're thinking about kind of Sauron as the Dark Lord, Sauron as a kind of stand-in for I don't know blackness or um, uh, or the Oriental Other, um, and. For all intents and purposes, Saruman is a white wizard. He he should exemplify everything about that kind of like elven kind of you know um, sort of white sort of purity. But he is tempted by the allure of difference. And we think thinking again about every how the East becomes everything that you're not allowed to be. The allure of the East is um, the allure of power. The the Saruman desires that power. Uh, Galadriel and Gandalf very famously are not even, you know, they understand that it would corrupt them and they don't even want to consider the idea. They can't have an ethical relationship with um, the power of the ring, um, even though Galadriel has a kind of like a ring that has a lesser power. <clears throat> so I feel like there's this interesting way in which, and I think that it's something that is a very common kind of colonial trope, but the idea that this kind of old, this, this, thread of power is something that the East has. It's not something that we have. We have we only have good relationships to power and the other has bad relationships to power. And this is a justification for, you know, colonialism, right? But for Saruman, he what interests me about he breeds these orcs, you know, and he 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 in a sense he 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 wants to become like you know, like um, the elves, like Smeagol, he wants to become the other. He wants to become this kind of evil force. He wants to be consumed by it. He wants to be part of it. And so he's a kind of race traitor 
in a way. He's the kind of Rachel Dolezal of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> right? He, he's a race traitor. He has black children, right? Um, this he, he, you know, and he, and so he. I don't know. I think that he's interesting in that sense, in that he is so um, enamored by the fantasy of Orientalism that he wants to. Oh, he's a kind of Flaubert in a way, but um, and and he he takes on the. Yeah, he, he, he wants to take on the power that is afforded to, to, to the East through this kind of fantasy. Um, yeah. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, there's a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. Long with height, fuzzy with a toe. Lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins. So that, dear listeners, is the late Leonard Nimoy, who famously portrayed uh, Spock from the original series of Star Trek, singing about Bilbo Baggins. Um, for some reason, this is a random inclusion in uh, For the Love of Spock documentary, um, and it's just the perfect segue for our two case studies, because now we're going to shift into the final frontier and discuss uh, a number of different Star Trek series. Um, but I think... We cannot discuss mixed race metaphor in science fiction without discussing Spock from the original series. Um, and we can't discuss Spock without first acknowledging the context in which this character emerged, both fictional and real. So the original series of Star Trek originally aired between September 8th, 1966 to June 3rd, 1969. It followed the adventures of the crew aboard the USS Enterprise, led by Captain Kirk, um, portrayed by... William Shatner, uh, the late Leonard Nimoy portrayed Mr. Spock, who is a half-human, half-Vulcan first officer and science officer. Dr. Leonard Burns McCoy, as depicted by the also late DeForest Kelly, rounds out the cast power trio. Um, so Star Trek actually really became the pop culture phenomenon we recognize it as today when it achieved national syndication in the United States in the 1970s. So Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek's creator, intended the series to be a vision of what human society ought to become. It is important to note the egalitarian nature of the Enterprise, uh, both gender and multiple races working side by side in apparent harmony. So harmonious, in fact, that it is not even really remarked upon. It is the norm for the 24th century in Roddenberry's uh, view. That's, that's the way in which human society will emerge. Um, mundane harmony between human sexes and races. I find Roddenberry quite fascinating as a as a storyteller because um, because of this very distinct vision that he had for human society. I mean, this was a very important aspect to Star Trek. Um, and I found this very fascinating interview with Humanist magazine from 1991 mm -hmm. where he talks a lot about these um, distinct aspects to 24th century human society. Um, yeah, I think I'll read out a few. So, firstly, he's asked, you had equality among the sexes and race with black, Asian, and female officers on the bridge. In the time frame that the series was set, the 23rd century, these things were taken as normal and unremarkable, but it was all quite advanced for the mid-20th century television. And Roddenberry replies, you know, he goes, for example, I tend to think that in the future it won't seem at all strange that women are treated as the equals of men. I know, like, radical thinking there right mm -hmm. um and then he goes through some of the ways in which the the network nbc kind of resisted this idea and there i will say that 
um, the depiction of racial harmony between humans in Star Trek, the original series, is quite progressive for its time. But there are holes to pick in its depiction of gender. And I think a lot of this is actually the product of um, intervention from the network. Um, so um, they basically reduced him to having just a third complement of women when he really actually wanted to have a female second in command, um, including possibly having a female Spock. And then he goes on to say, it did not seem strange to me that I would use different races on the ship. Perhaps I received too good an education in a 1930s school I went to because I knew what proportion of people and races the world population consisted of. I had been in the Air Force and had travelled to foreign countries. He actually, he was a pilot during the Second World War as well. Um, obviously, these people handled themselves mentally as well as anyone else. I guess I owe a great part of this to my parents. They never taught me that one race or colour was at all superior. I remember in school seeking out Chinese students and Mexican students simply because the idea of different cultures fascinated me. So having not been taught that there is a pecking order in people, a superiority of race or culture, it was natural that my writing went that way as well. And then finally, the interviewer also asked, was there some pressure on you from the network to make Star Trek white people in space? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, to which Gene Roddenberry replied, yes, there was, but not terrible, not terrible pressure. Comments like, come on, you're certainly not going to have blacks and whites working together, that sort of thing. I said that if we don't have blacks and whites working together by the time our civilization catches up to the time frame the series is set in, there won't be any people. And so, I mean, I think it's important to note that this was at the time when the civil rights movement in the United States was at its peak, um, which, where, the movement whereby um, African-Americans were seeking an end to racial segregation and discrimination, as well as pursuing legal recognition and fundamental citizenship rights. So during the time in which Star Trek, or just before the time in which Star Trek was first broadcast, you know, we saw in 1963 the March on Washington, where... Martin Luther King Jr. De delivered his famous dream speech. Um, 64 and 68 saw the separate civil rights acts passed. There were also several race riots during this time and, of course, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. It is perhaps understandable that the idea of harmony between human races might have seemed naively utopian at the time. In For the Love of Spock, which is the documentary that um, Leonard Nimoy's son uh, made about... Um, Leonard himself, uh, just after his passing. Um, Leonard himself mentions that Roddenberry was insistent that Spock was integral um, to the Star Trek story, even though the first pilot failed. So the first pilot episode failed. The entire cast was thrown out the door except for Spock. And he was insistent on it because he wanted Spock there as a reminder that the Enterprise crew was a mixed crew, which to me seems a little odd, because for a viewer in the 60s, it would be very apparent that it's a mixed crew, given that you had um, that you had the figure of Lieutenant Uhura, uh, portrayed by Nichelle Nichols, an African-American woman on the bridge. Um, in fact, I, in my research for this episode, I uncovered the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. insisted, um, encouraged Nichols to stay on the show when she was thinking of leaving, because it's important for representation. The original series is already also often regarded as the first television show to depict an interracial kiss. Um, this happened between Uhura and Captain Kirk in Plato's Stepchildren. This is disputed as the first instance, but I think it's still important to note, given that it's probably the most, the earliest, most visible uh, instance of it. 
There's also Lieutenant Sulu, portrayed by the wonderful George Takei, a Japanese-American. I don't think there's any sense of human nationality in in um, once we get to the 23rd century. Like, I, I don't recall any mention of anyone being American or Japanese or any, any of that stuff. So it's pretty ambiguous in universe. But it is pretty well documented that Takei himself experienced internment camps for Japanese citizens uh, during um, the Second World War. But the more I think about this idea that Spock himself was important to anchor this idea that this is a mixed crew, because it, it seems to me that he often functions as a lightning rod of difference, um, of otherness, if you will. And I think this may actually be an important ingredient in sort of grounding this utopian vision of human racial harmony. Spock's presence draws the eye, his foreignness holds attention, including that of the viewers, allowing for the relations between the other present human races to settle into harmonious normalcy. Did you guys have anything to add to that? Yeah, because I, I, I have to admit that I'm not a, the original series um, viewer. That's something I really do have to get into. I'm a bit of a Next Generation and Voyager tragic. But um, this is definitely the case in the, those series that there's very little reference to national identities or racial identities um, for humans. Sometimes there are these kind of, you know, Jean-Luc Picard. There's an episode where he goes back to his, like, um, French um, roots. His, his father, I think, works... His father is a farmer who works on, like, a vineyard or something. That's this kind of, like, French stereotype, right? But it, it doesn't necessarily mean that those racial tensions aren't there. So, for example, in the Voyager series, there is a... I think he's meant to be a Korean-American... Well, you know, a Korean... Yeah, I suppose you could read him as a Korean-American character, um, Ensign Kim. And the interesting thing about Ensign Kim is that even though he's never really spoken about as Asian, like, there's you know, he's this... He has Asian parents who are stereotypically Asian parents in the sense that they're always worrying about him and worrying about his kind of, um, you know, his kind of, you know, future and the, his career and stuff like that. And there's this really kind of visible way in which Ensign Kim is not allowed to be promoted and he's very rarely given leadership positions. And there, But there are many episodes where he's slowly given leadership positions, um, but there's a lot of kind of, a, there's a big deal made about his transition into leadership. And this is the bamboo ceiling, right? This is the bamboo ceiling <laughs> the that, bamboo limits, ceiling. <laughs> that limits kind of Asian men from leadership roles. And that's never kind of explicitly talked about in a racial way, but it's still there, you know? And so I think there's an interesting tension there that even though the, the idea of race is never spoken about in terms of, you know, human races, um, those particular kind of racial ideologies still kind of find their way in, in subtle ways. I haven't watched the entirety of the original series or the animated series that followed, all the films, but there is one instance that I recall where George Takei is under the magical whammy and running around trying to kill people with a katana. So <laughs> yeah. They do re-emerge in some ways. Um, but yeah, it, Sulu and Uhura's presence on the bridge is almost... A, entirely unremarked upon um, and I think Spock functions as a way to to centre that focus of otherness in that sense. We have said before that science fiction and fantasy allows us to draw upon you know the supernatural and the otherworldly as a metaphor to enable discussion of oftentimes quite difficult subjects 
Um, and I think it functions in this way to create a whole subset of terms, um, basically a new language to unpack these issues where we may lack you know, the appropriate terms to deal with it in reality, in a sense. And I think that's a very valuable function of fantasy and science fiction, quite broadly. And I think Spock's Vulcanist functions much in this way, and it is bolstered by his constant proximity to recognizably racial others like Sulu and Uhura on the bridge. Indeed, it would not be too hard to transplant a lot of the experiences that Spock himself goes through throughout the series and impose them upon, you know, um, the ways in which African-Americans and Japanese-Americans have in the recent past or indeed the present of Star Trek original series broadcast go through themselves. But even racial prejudice leveled at Spock is used to leverage this world aspect of racism being quite taboo. Um, In What Are Little Girls Made Of, which is I know it's a literary reference, but it's it's always a title that weirds me out. It wigs me out a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so this uh, this occurred in season one. Kirk is Kirk is about to have his memories transplanted into an android duplicate of himself, of course. Uh, but at the last second, he creates this false memory of prejudice towards Spock due to his mixed heritage. Andrea, stand by for cortex circuits. The android will be so perfect even replace the captain. The same memories, the same attitudes, the same abilities. Activate circuits. Mind your own business, Mr. Spock. I'm sick of your half-breed interference, do you hear? Mind your own business, Mr. Spock. I'm sick of your half-breed interference. This is framed as being so out of character for Kirk that it is enough to tip Spock off that there is something severely wrong with the Kirk running around the Enterprise ship. (laughs) It is usually only in the most extreme circumstances when Kirk deploys this kind of rhetoric as a means of communicating emergency to Spock. These instances are usually concluded with an air-clearing conversation between the two to ensure that it was, in fact, false racism. Something bothering you, Mr. Spock? Frankly, I was rather dismayed by your use of the term half-breed, Captain. You must admit, it is an unsophisticated expression. I'll remember that, Mr. Spark. The next time I find myself in a similar situation. So even again, Spock as a figure is used to kind of articulate this ideal utopian humanist future where racism is just illogical, as Leonard Nimoy would say. (laughs) We predominantly see Spock through his engagement with human society. That is largely the bulk of our exposure to Spock throughout the entire series. And it is very clear that he identifies primarily as a Vulcan, often noting how human customs and behavior mystify him. He is frequently also referred to as a talking head for Vulcan society at large. So whenever some sort of aspect needs to be explained about Vulcan culture, Vulcan biology, he is always the go-to person for that. The token Vulcan, if you will. Like I said, I haven't actually watched the entirety of the original series. Um, Tim, could you, like, Vulcans repress emotions. That's the key distinction uh, with humans as framed in the original series. Um, is it ever made clear whether that is a biological aspect of Vulcanness or is it a cultural practice? Yeah, um, 
I think just before I answer that question, I think it's interesting to think about the sort of emotional repression as a kind of, you know, possibly kind of like Japanese or Asian characteristic. I mean, it feels very Buddhist to me when I think about it, the way in which kind of emotions are controlled, emotions are kind of like de, you know, de-evolved or whatever. And, I mean, you can read these kinds of um, cultural or racial aspects into a lot of the races, and they're, they're definitely not... Um, they're, they're signifiers that have many different influences. But I think that's a kind of interesting thing to point out, given that you were talking about the... Um, well, in thinking about the the significance of um, race and um, you know, uh, human races and um, space kind of races, um, but yeah, because again, I'm getting my knowledge of um, Vulcan from Voyager, which is a series where, um, like you were saying about Spock, um, Tuvok is a character that is the sort of token Vulcan who answers all the questions about what is a Vulcan, etc., etc. And it goes into quite a bit of detail in the Voyager series. Um, and Tuvok, interestingly, is black too. And this kind of gives us a little bit more of a window into Vulcan society, the idea that they might be racially heterogeneous too, but they're all of the same kind of Vulcan race. Um, and But Tuvok, for, I mean, the way that Tuvok describes um, the repression as both racial and cultural, which I think is quite confusing, actually. So sometimes he will say um, that this, that I have these telepathic abilities or I have this, you know, um, ability to control my emotions, um, as do all the Vulcan race. Um, and and it, it, it sort of assumes that there's this kind of racial origin to um, this particular characteristic, but he's also very clear that um, Vulcans used to be um, driven by their emotions, that they, in their primitive times uh, it was a source of you know conflict and distress for them. They had to learn how to um, control that part of their natural racial instincts too. And so, and so there are cultural practices around meditation and so on and so forth um, that allow them to, as they, as they grow up, um, within Vulcan society, um, yeah, these kind of practices allow them to um, pra- uh, control their emotions, basically. So there's, it's quite ambiguous, actually. At the times it seems racial, and at other times it's obviously cultural. So, yeah, I'm, I don't think that it um, that there's a clear-cut answer to that within within the Star Trek series that I know of. Yeah, it's very difficult to get a handle on it. An unfortunate trope in the portrayal of biracial identities or even dual nationals is this inherent suspicion about loyalties. Um, Thus, the other must constantly demonstrate that they are loyal to a particular, you know, culture or side. Um, And Spock is not exempt from this trope. This is most visible in the original series episode, Balance of Terror, in season one, which also introduces us to the Romulan Empire for the first time. It is established that despite a previous war, no human has ever actually seen a Romulan. So naturally, when it's revealed that they are, in fact, Vulcan in appearance, Spock is at the center of suspicion. Now, Kirk immediately smacks down the first sign of bigotry from a helmsman, um, Mr. Stiles. Um, Mr. Stiles actually lost family in the previous Romulan wars, which is why, which is the source of his hatred. Keep going. Cryptography is working on it, sir. Came with the spark. Didn't quite get that, Mr. Sam. Nothing, sir. Repeat it. 
I was suggesting that Mr. Spock could probably translate it for you, sir. I assume you're complimenting Mr. Spock on his ability to decode. I'm not sure, sir. Well, here's one thing you can be sure of, Mr. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. Do I make myself clear? You do, sir. Again, this proves that aboard the Enterprise, racism against Spock is taboo. That said, this this is the first in, instance in which um, such discourse is not brought out by the need, like an urgent emergency need or some form of magical whammy. This this guy is in full control of himself and what he's saying. And I think an interesting figure in this episode is Takei's Sulu, because he's often in frame when Spock has you know suspicion cast upon him. You know, the, when he's confronted with that. Um, purely because of his heritage. So Sulu, Sulu is also a vocal counterpoint to his fellow helmsman's proposals. Um, like I mentioned, Takei is well documented as a former inmate in a Japanese internment camp maintained on American soil during World War II. The racist logic for suspicion exhibited by, his, by Mr. Stiles would actually be familiar to the actor. And I, I, think, I do not think this is an accidental detail. So he's always in frame when aspersion's being cast. Mr. Stiles says, we know what they look like. And he gives this meaningful look at Spock. And in the background, you see Judge Takei's face. Like, yeah, you'd be familiar with that. <laughs> Spock, of course, intervenes at a critical moment to save this bigot's life, um, despite the latter's rejection of his help only moments before. This leads to, you know, that change of heart moment from the helmsman. You all right, Mr. Spock? Yes, very well, thank you, Captain. And you, Mr. Sound? I'm alive, sir. But I wouldn't be. Mr. Spark, he pulled me out of the phaser room. Saved my life. He risked his life, and after I... I saved a trained navigator so that he could return to duty. I'm capable of no other feelings in such matters. Nevertheless, this plays into the trope of the other proving their loyalty, which is not intended to be anything but a positive thing in this episode. The logic behind it, however, sustains normative suspicion about mixed race and dual nationals and their loyalties. I've not actually seen the second original series film, Wrath of Khan, but it seems that Spock's ultimate sacrifice plays into this trope again. Um, so he sacrifices himself to save the Enterprise. Um, and it prompts Kirk to remark, of my friend, I can only say this, of all the souls that I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human. Did you guys have any <laughs> input about about this trope? Yeah, we do have a, a very interesting bar set for Spock um, to prove his humanity and to prove that he is he is loyal to his crew members. It, it essentially is sacrifice that's required as I guess a minimum to put them at the same level. I think the the thing that's interesting about this for me is also something that happens a lot in the other series and it happens a lot with Voyager and Seven of Nine and Data as well in the mm. um, the Next Generation who's a, a um, android and there's also this kind of thing about uh, he's an android that wants to be human and he teaches us about what it means to be human. It's a very humanistic kind of narrative, right? And I feel like there's this really strong obsession with defining what it means to be human, with defining the values of humanness. And it comes through all the time in Star Trek. And I think it speaks to a real ambiguity about what the values of being a human are and this constant need to 
reproduce it all again and again and again because I think that it's underlyingly seen to be a lie. It's underlyingly this is kind of reality that we actually don't really know what it means to be human. We need to keep telling ourselves that it's its ability to show emotion or it's its ability um, to be, you know, uh, to help others or something like that, um, which is something that's of interest to me about the series. So before I talk about Valana Torres, who is one of the key sort of mixed-race characters in Star Trek Voyager, um, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of colonial narrative that is the Star Trek world. So Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek world is, uh, well, we see the world through what's called Starfleet, which is basically this kind of idea that all the different countries and races in the Earth have come together to into a unified kind of, um, you know, military and governmental kind of body called Starfleet. And Starfleet um, travel space um, they, and they colonize <coughs> different um, planets and so on and so forth. So first of all, obviously there is this kind of, like, like Scott was saying, this myth about um, race, no, the, no, the lack of racial um, discrimination, this kind of uh, unity of uh, the races. Um, but it it still is a colonial narrative in the sense that there are colonies and that there are these kind of anxieties around first contact. It's the frontier, the final frontier. Um, so it still really speaks to a very old narrative. And I think that that I thought I think it's interesting that you know, it would be inappropriate to simply tell an old. Um, colonial narrative in the um, in the context of you know Earth um, because it would have all sorts of complicated politics. But by going into the future, this is a mechanism for us to go into the past. And I think a lot of the episodes are really. I mean, so many of the episodes are about um, first contact with races, uh, new races. Sometimes they don't have warp capability, meaning they don't have a certain level of technological advancement. And the prime directive, which is one of the kind of governing, <coughs> one of the governing laws or rules of Starfleet, is that you don't engage with cultures unless they've gotten to a certain level of technological development, because you might influence them in adverse ways, right? So the idea of the prime directive is that uh, we are not these kind of pernicious, terrible colonialists who just go in there and you know fuck up a society, and then um, there are no ramifications. This is there's a code that tells you you can't do that. That's bad colonialism. But as opposed as, to the good colonialism, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's it's a very kind of yeah contradictory thing because they always break the prime directive, and it's really <laughs> constantly doing it, and. <clears throat> Often the episodes are this kind of very interesting way in which the episode is structured around a justification for breaking the prime directive. And it's a justification for colonialism, basically. And so this is what I love about Star Trek, is that it purports to be progressive. And all the stories are about, oh, look how good we are at being, at being colonialists. We're so ethical about it. But underneath all of that is a deeply pernicious, normalizing narrative that is an attempt to really sort of in a sort of anxiety-ridden way to really justify colonial action. And I think that's what I think is so fascinating about it is when I watch it, unpacking all those layers and really uh, uncovering 
the sort of fascinating anxieties around colonialism that are played out in this in this world. But so the episode I want to talk about is called Lineage. It's from the seventh season, it's the eleventh episode, um, and it focuses on Belana Torres, who is a half Klingon, half human um, member of the crew. She's the uh, head engineering officer. And the Klingons, if you don't know, are a sort of warrior race. They're very kind of violent and volatile. And so she has this kind of, you know, this temper. I guess you could say this is, you know, maybe there's an essence of blackness in this. So she has this kind of, um, you know, inappropriate temper sometimes within the world of Star Trek. Um, and it's a marker of her difference, her racial difference, as opposed to the very kind of like calm, you know, mild-mannered sort of like, you know, middle-class coded um, sensibilities of the, the other human characters. So... But this episode, basically, um, we find out at the beginning that Taurus is pregnant. And she's been having a relationship with uh, another uh, crew member, um, a human, a white human, um, called Tom Paris. And there is some minor uh, problem with uh, with the baby. It has a curvature of the spine, which is common for Klingons. Um, And she had it, uh, Barolina Taurus had it, her mother had it. It's a genetic kind of trait. So... The doctor produces a holographic image of the spine to show them, and Tom Paris says, can you show us uh, uh, a projection of what the baby will look like at this certain stage of development? And um, he shows them the baby, um, and the baby has forehead ridges, um, which is a a key um, defining aspect of the visibility of the, of the, um, the racial body of the, the Klingon. She's beautiful. Forehead ridges. Yes. But she's only one quarter Klingon. Klingon traits remain dominant for several generations, even with a single ancestor. She looks just like her mother. So the baby has this kind of visible difference. The baby would not be able to pass. And what this hap- what then happens is that it triggers all these memories for Taurus of her stigmatization and racial difference growing up on Earth. And so it troubles this idea that there is only racial harmony uh, because if you're not a human, there's still this kind of stigmatization, right? So um, Taurus has these flashbacks to um, going on a camping trip with um, some her father and a, a sort of her father's friend's family, and the other children don't like her. She feels like they don't like her because she's Klingon, and they do a little play a little prank on her, which is to put a worm on her sandwich. <laughs> My teacher said Klingons like live food. <laughs> hey, stop it! Stop! It was just a joke. It was a stupid joke, Dean. He's always doing stuff like that to me. Don't be mad, Belana. Belana, wait. But. The other thing that is at the source of this tension for Balana is also her relationship with her human reed white father and her particular tension with him because he doesn't understand her problems, right? She's experiencing this racism and the, the human father is saying, oh, I think you're overreacting, you know. You know, he doesn't think that there is racism. And so he's saying, you know, uh, you're just getting upset about something that isn't real. And Balana finds this really um, aggravating, obviously. And then what comes out is that he, she overhears her father talking to his friend, um, 
and he's saying, look, um, she's the older she's getting, um, the more sort of a- aggressive she's getting. Now, it's funny how mom and dad always turn out to be right. What do you mean? Mom warned me not to marry Miral. Mom blocked Miral. Sure she did. But she never thought I had the constitution to live with a Klingon. And now I'm living with two of them. And Torres, he overhears this and she has this kind of... It, it hurts her a lot because um, her mother's difference and her own difference are sort of a source of... I don't know, they're a source of frustration for her father and she feels rejected by her father. Alana, listen to me. Your mother and I are having problems, but that you doesn't You don't mean... love her anymore. That's not true. Yes, it is, and you don't love me either. Alana... You're no different than anyone else. You don't like Cleons. You said it. You are twisting my words, Blana. So what happens then, because we're going through these flashbacks, right? We're learning about how Torres felt really conflicted about being half Klingon and how she felt really shame. She felt shame for her Klingon heritage and her Klingon identity. And so what she ends up doing is she 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 goes to the holodeck and um, which is where you can do holographic programs. And she says, um, computer, show me what would happen if, what, how my child would um, look at 12 years old if you took out these genetic traits. And the genetic traits are the ones that take out her Klingon kind of features. So the first time she does it, the, the, instead of the, a child being brunette, she's blonde. And then the second time, the ridges are gone. So she wants the child to pass as a human, read pass as white, so that she won't have the troubles that Torres had growing up. And so she forces the doctor, she alters the doctor's this, because she initially tells the doctor, and he's like, this is ridiculous, I'm not going to do this. I mean, these are not necessary, and it could be damaging. And then she alters his program to undergo the surgery, and just in time, um, they find out, and um, it doesn't happen. When the people around you are all one way, and you're not, you can't help feeling like there's something wrong with you. But Voyager isn't just one way. We've got Bajorans, Vulcans, a Talaxian. And 140 humans. Our daughter is going to have a mixed heritage, just like her mother. It's something you'll have in common, something she should be proud of. Why destroy that? I'm not destroying anything. Gene resequencing isn't a weapon, it's a tool. Like a hyperspanner. She's not a machine, she's our daughter. But it 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 be it ends up being um this kind of fear of the fear of rejection from the white father um, is sort of something that she is feeling towards her husband, just well, Tom Paris. So she's afraid that, you know, because of the child's difference, uh, this is also a reflection of her own anxieties about rejection from whiteness, um, rejection from the world at large, um, and the ways in which um, dif- uh, r- racial different marks you out as other, and therefore um, you get rejected and not seen as a human, right? Not seen as everybody else. And I think that what what fascinates me about this is, like, you know, um, like the Spock example, um, 
there is this kind of divide between these two identities that are playing out and it shows some of the really key traumas or at least some of the really key kind of difficulties of being in this position and they go back to these childhood kinds of sentiments too and it it really evocatively explores them and, and I, I know I'm going to be giving a lecture on this in the race and representation course next semester <laughs> when I'm talking mixed race and I'm talking about Star Trek and I think that I just wanted to read a quick quote um, by Sarah Ahmed um, on this topic of being mixed race and feeling like one has to conform to whiteness. And I think this is a really, uh, for me at least, this is a real um, a, a big part of growing up mixed race. So I just want to read this paragraph that um, she writes about. So this is from Queer Phenomenology. She has a whole chapter on race and then a section on thinking about queer as mixed race or mixed race as queer. So she says, <clears throat> I want to suggest here that the mixed family is not easily incorporated as a social ideal precisely because the two sides do not necessarily create a new line. In my experience of having a white English mother and a Pakistani father, my early points of identification were with my mother and were bound up with whiteness and the desire to be seen as white and as part of a white community. This desire can be rearticulated as, as the desire to share whiteness or even to have a share in it. Of course, such an image of whiteness was fantastic. The fantasy becomes binding as an effect of the identification. When I remember walking down the street between my parents, I did not always feel between them. I felt on one side more than the other. I wanted to be on the side of my mother. Indeed, my desire put me on her side. This was not a moment of gender identification in the sense that it was not about wanting to be a girl. Rather, it was about wanting to be seen as white and not have the father present, insofar as his body threatened my desire for whiteness. I remember thinking that if my father were not there, I might be able to look white. Such disidentification involved the desire to give up proximity to that which is given through the background. I remember wishing he would disappear so I could be by my mother's side, on her side with her. What does it mean to want to be white by being oriented in this way? So that again is a really evocative account of this kind of shame and disgust that one can feel towards one's um, ethnic side and the pressure to want to be white and to side with whiteness that I feel like is very much shown by Belana Torres in this episode. She wants to destroy markers of difference and to um, for her child to grow up white and you know, re, uh, you know, or human. Um, and I, yeah, I just thought this really speaks to the, the mixed race experience in a really great way. And I wonder, yeah, what did you guys have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I really um, like that Ahmed quote as well. It, mm. I actually think back again to growing up and one thing that's I remember whenever I'm thinking about growing up mixed race, um, I remember when the Cronulla riots happened, mm. which mm. in Australia uh, it was basically a fight between... Uh, white Australians and Lebanese Australians at Cronulla. And I remember myself and another guy at my school who were both, like, Lebanese Australian heritage were kind of talking about, like, I, I don't even know how old I would have been. I would have been, like, early teens mm. and kind of talking about how it felt like it was our two families fighting. <laughs> like, mm. it, was a, it was a really weird experience of I never had to confront 
the idea of my different heritages ever potentially being opposed in any context mm. to each other until this happened. Because um, I didn't really, you know, I didn't understand Lebanon as like where it was kind of um, located geographically and didn't understand it as part of the Middle East and all of the background mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of thought, you know, I mostly associated it with food. <laughs> that was my understanding of my cultural heritage, <laughs> as it is for a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, it was that was kind of confronting. And I remember there being one girl in particular at school who made a few comments about it. And I mean, she was a nasty person in general. Right. <laughs> she, yeah. was, she was not specifically racist. She was just a nasty person mm. about everything. Um, but at the time I kind of like realized like, Oh, like that's, that's the kind of person who would look at me and hate me based on, you know, who, where my mother's parents were born. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that what's yeah what's interesting about your story, oh, sorry for me, and the, the way that it intersects with this Ahmed is well, I mean, because you can you could say that a lot of racialized people go through this kind of dichotomous experience as well, where they feel like you know at home. Uh, you know, or they they might be, you know, let's say, you know, to use a kind of word that probably doesn't make any sense, but monoracially kind of like Asian or something, right? They're both of their parents are, you know, Chinese, let's say, for instance, and um, they might feel as if they're a banana, right? Which is the idea that you're yellow on the outside and white on the inside, that you feel conflicted, that you probably also feel this desire um, to let go of your ethnic heritage in order to kind of like um, blend into the white society, right? But I think that what this... This this chapter of um, Ahmed's uh, Ahmed's book um, really highlights is that it's different when the disjuncture is within the family, mm-hmm. right? It's when it's within the home. It's a slightly different experience, I think, because it's the divide between you know one race within the family and then another race outside of the family is different to there are these two races within the family and these tensions are happening around you in the family space. And I think that's a very specific experience um, that creates, can potentially create a lot of divides in, in, your, in your intimate home, you know, um, uh, all throughout your upbringing rather than sort of as in a space that's separate to your home. It's also so interesting that uh, particularly strangers they'll read you however they read you and they're never going to understand the complexities of I mean a lot of things to do with your life but in this case um, your different heritages and I remember when I was living in France getting into a conversation with this guy that I'd only just met he was like a friend of a friend and him telling me that he really doesn't like Arabs and I'm like uh yeah like that's that's like half of my family and he's like, oh, no, 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 like, you don't care. <laughs> and mm. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> Why don't I, did you just disqualify me from my own heritage and then insult my mother and her family? Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like, you kind of, not only do you have to deal with this um, tension within the family, but then you get people externally telling you that, no, you only belong to particular parts mm. of that heritage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really the interesting thing, passing, the ambiguity um, that you can inhabit as a mixed-race person. Uh, it's a very, yeah, unique experience. 
And so the other figure that I find really interesting as well is seven of nine, not just because I'm a pervert, because seven <laughs> of nine is this kind of like, you know, highly sexualized character. And I think that, you know, it's she she wears these kind of like skin tight outfits. She has large breasts. She's this kind of like blonde, all American kind of beautiful woman. But I think that um, and uh, there was a lot of um. She was actually dating one of the writers, and so she got this kind of gig, and there was quite a bit of opposition to it. So Kate Mulgrew, who plays um, Captain Janeway, who's also in Orange is the New Black, was quite opposed to her presence because she thought, we don't need some hypersexualized woman on this show. Um, they apparently didn't really like each other, which is kind of interesting because there's a lot of episodes that play up sort of a sexual tension between them. Um, so <laughs> I think it's kind of fucked up, but also but also hot you know, in the way that they played that up, knowing that they didn't like each other. Um, I, I'm not sure if that's actually true or not, but that's apparently the, that's apparently the case. But yeah, so but Seven of Nine is a a a cyborg. So she's part of what's called the Borg. Um, she was a young human child and she was abducted by this race of um, cyborgs who are sort of part cybernetic, part organic. And they um, they are part of a collective hive mind. So their brains and minds are connected by a kind of <laughs> Wi-Fi, I suppose. <laughs> they are, um, they're all interconnected um, and it's a hierarchical society, so the drones, as they're called, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, have no kind of individual agency. They have no individuality, which is the word that is probably, you know, used and abused to the nth degree in Voyager. This whole obsession with individuality, right, which is the kind of, as I'll talk about, is is the kind of mech, is the kind of like symbol of neoliberal kind of discourse, right? The idea that you have this individuality that you can choose to do these things, um, you can choose to be your own kind of person. Um, but so she's she's interesting because she's she's mixed in that sense. If we think about the Borg as a race, you know, and that's I think that's the way that it's that it's framed in Star Trek is that they are a race even though they are actually a collection of lots of different races that have been assimilated into this kind of um, cyborg collective. She straddles humanness and um, and being a Borg. And, but also there's an anxiety, uh, I think, around um, contamination. So this idea that um, we could be taken by um, the other and um, we can be changed and Seven of Nine has to be brought back to her human read Western, kind of white Western essence um, because, um, again, it's that 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 um, fear of miscegenation or the fear of becoming other, um, the idea that you could slip into um, becoming something else. Um, so, but uh, this, the, uh, the idea um, that the cyborg can be read as a kind of ethnic other goes back to this concept of techno-orientalism. And Morley and Robbins, I think, are the people that really sort of make this uh, area of study. And it basically goes back to this idea that 
during the sort of 80s and 90s, when Japan was really, the economy of Japan was really booming, they became really famous for becoming quite technologically advanced, right? So there's a lot of kind of, you know, technological advancement happening there, cybernetic kind of advancement happening in, in um, Japan. They were, their companies, technological companies, were taking over the economies, right? They were infiltrating um, the US kind of markets. And so there was this anxiety about the rising modernity of um Asia, specifically Japan. And nowadays, this has kind of become deflected onto China, perhaps not so much because of technology, but because of kind of like power mm. of different kinds. <clears throat> so, so a lot of people read the Borg as some kind of incarnation of Asians. And it's, it's particularly, um, I think that this, I mean, you could read anything into it. I'm not suggesting that you have to read them as Asians, but it's particularly pertinent, this parallel, when you think about the collectivity of the Borg, that they are, you know, that they are collective, they don't have individualism, which is often that kind of distinction drawn between the East and the West, that, mm. you know, the, the East are collectivist and the West are um, individualist, right? So, and the, the, the drones um, have no, uh, yeah, individuality. They don't have these kind of essential qualities that make, um, you know, uh, Western identity uh, superior to the East in the colonial narrative. Um, <clears throat> so Seven of Nine has to has to learn how to be human again. She needs to she needs to um, find her individuality. And this again for me is this this desire to constant this need to constantly ascertain what it means to be human or what it means to be Western. I think um, in these episodes, what what are the values that we have? Um, and there's constantly a constant need to prove yes, these values are right. Right. This and it's always bringing back to yes. Humanity is the this has the truly kind of ideal qualities that against all the other races humanity has this kind of ideal, um, and it's this process of needing to shore this up. But so the episode I want to talk about is from the beginning of season four, right when Seven of Nine has been stolen from the collective. So um, they have this whole other narrative, right, where uh, they have to um, uh, they have to work with the Borg to to kill a common enemy, and then they realize that this Borg they're working with is human, so they abduct her and want to make her human again, right? And so it's called the Gift. It's season four, episode two, and. There's this really great scene, I think, which is, I think, epitomizes what I love about Star Trek, where um, the crew of Voyager have um, put um, Seven of Nine in the brig, which is like a prison cell. Prior to that, Seven of Nine has tried to um, contact the collective, and this is not a good situation, so they put her in the brig. And then Janeway says to her, look, I can't have you trying to contact the Borg. That puts us all at risk. Um... I want you to be free of the collective, and I want you, yeah, I want you to experience this freedom um, and not become um, an automaton, and not be an automaton anymore. You have the, the freedom to be an individual. If at that time we choose to return to the collective, will you permit it? I don't think you'll want to do that. You would deny us the choice, as you deny us now. You have imprisoned us in the name of humanity, yet you will not grant us your most cherished human right to choose our own fate. You are hypocritical, manipulative. We do not want to be what you are. Return us to the collective. 
You lost the capacity to make a rational choice the moment you were assimilated. They took that from you. And until I'm convinced you've gotten it back, I'm making the choice for you. You're staying here. Then you are no different than the Borg. And it's this thing that just stands on its own, this scene. It's, it's not, it's not um, qualified in any way. And it highlights the complete hypocrisy of the neoliberal narrative that Star Trek Voyager has put forward. And it completely deconstructs everything about um, Janeway's ethics and morals, her values, and, and the whole kind of value system of um, the, the series and of Star Trek as a whole. And I think that what, what is so fascinating to me about this is that because Star Trek is so infatuated with this kind of colonial narrative, right, with going to the essence of going to the essence of um, what what it means to relate to difference. How how are we, um, you know, not only how are we different to them, but what what makes us who we are, you know, in relation to them. It goes so deep into that and interrogating that because it wants to find answers in order to um, justify um, colonialism that actually it it completely deconstructs itself and it completely shows all the hypocrisies and all the lies that it's based upon um, without, I think, even knowing it. <laughs> I think that it completely just, um, you know, reveals itself um, bare and all its kind of, um, you know, its contradictions. And I think that is, yeah, it's just a really fascinating scene that, that it complicates the narrative in the sense that you, you're expected to... Um, to share in all these kind of neoliberal Western values about individuality, et cetera, et cetera. But what you end up happening, uh, what you end up doing is actually siding with Seven of Nine and being sharing her criticism of all of those values too. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that it deconstructs itself perhaps unintentionally. I was going to mm-hmm. ask how, how does this character go on, go forward? How's her arc throughout the rest of the series? Does it still reflect this... The, the nature of this scene or is it does it re, kind of restore this narrative of Star Trek this hypocrisy that you're talking about yeah it's definitely um, restoring them all and so she eventually Damn. becomes yeah, <laughs> I, know. I mean but she, she's challenged along the way right um, and it's a slow kind of process of assimilation basically and it goes back to this whole idea you know I mean oh you know, Ghassan Haj talks about multiculturalism as actually a coded form, you know, a, a kind of coded form of assimilation, right? Yeah. And this is exactly what is happening here. She's becoming assimilated into, um, you know, the human co- uh, co- collective. And so, <laughs> and, and I think that um, it's definitely very pernicious in that sense. Um, but I think that like, you know, like the orcs, perhaps, um, I, th- I think she's interesting because she offers us an opportunity to identify with the other, actually, not to to actually to, to see what it means to be outside of the system and to, to be different to the system and um, to have to work within it and to resist it as well. And I think that's actually, it's doing both of those things, right? And I think it's interesting to think about what is um, evocative and interesting about Seven of Nine as a figure of difference at the same time as that she is... Um, reinforcing her story is about reinforcing normativity so techno i mean orientalism primarily 
in Edward Said's writings, focused mainly on the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, but techno-orientalism kind of seems to focus more on Asia. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, have you encountered anything about, you know, these sort of these promising emergent cities of wealth and prosperity and technology and technical advancement that's occurring particularly in Dubai and stuff because there was a very small period of time where video games were obsessed with raising up Dubai as this this (laughs) hopeful hopeful um, metropolis for for you know technological advancement and all that and then destroying it (laughs) so it's a failed promise so it, it ultimately let humanity down. Um, this is particularly true in Spec Ops The Line, as well as the latest Deus Ex. Um, just, mm. just seems to be this obsession with raising up and then immediately destroying Dubai as this, mm. as this promised city. Do you think, I mean, you may need to have more engagement in these kind of narratives, but do you think that um, this phenomenon of representing Dubai fits in with, with techno-orientalism? Yeah, I think so. Um, there would, I'm sure, because I don't know much about that, I haven't read about that, but I think that's a really interesting parallel. I'm sure there are, there are particular um, ways, uh, contextual differences that would differentiate these two mm. situations. But I do think that techno-orientalism definitely has this kind of divided sentiment of attraction towards difference and this desire to, to stamp it out, right? And this mm. kind of um, yeah, attraction and sort of destruction at the same time. So, for example... Um, this is, have you seen the terrible um, uh, Wolverine movie that's set in Japan? Uh, yeah. <laughs> have you seen yeah. that? The one yeah. that was shot in Australia. Is in it shot in Australia? Yeah, oh, no way. that all shot, like, the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in that narrative, right, how the, the bad guy, who's basically a hangover from the war, like, he's one of mm. those, like, war soldiers that went into the corporate world, which is exactly the techno-oriented sphere, that all of these people in the corporate world are just people from the war and they're trying to take over in, an, in other means, right? And and so he is becomes this robot man that um, is the bad guy that um, he has like a robot suit or something, doesn't he, at the end? I think I've blocked myself. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I was reading about techno-orientalism at the time, so it was like, oh, my God. Um, and so <coughs> Wolverine has to destroy him. Um, and so there is this kind of attraction to this figure of the sort of powerful, um, you know, Asian other, the techno-orientalist other. But, I mean, mixed with that is this kind of fantasy, because it begins with um, the atomic bombing, um, the film brings with the atomic bombing. The story is that he he was there. He survived the bombing, uh, Wolverine. That is, and in the end, this kind of techno-orientalist machine, kind of bad guy, has to be um, destroyed and quenched. And that's the only way to create satisfaction in this narrative. So it's both of those things at the same time. It's it's this attraction to this world, all the kind of ways in which um, the aesthetics of Japan are kind of sort of, you know, blown out of proportion. They're, all the bad guys are ninjas and they're mm. all in these traditional kind of like, you know, pl- um, you know, tatami kind of, um, um, the headquarters is like a tatami complex. And so, but yeah, mixed with that is this kind of deep desire to destroy that as well, this kind of perverse desire. Mm. Yeah. You know, the only thing I remember about that film, because we had a lecture where I think Animal Logic does the like the, the motion graphics for it, uh, and they'll talk you about the train scene, the fight on the train, where they kept wanting it faster, like make it more impressive, mm. um, and they're supposed to be going through Tokyo, I think. And 
at that speed, with the amount of time they're fighting for, they actually would have gone the entire length of Japan <laughs> in the train. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah, it's not the it's not the best film, but it's you know, <laughs> the graphic yeah, kind of interesting. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I had such a good time, guys. Thank you so much. Um, you can find him on academia.edu. We're going to put his link in the description for this episode. Um, you can also reach out to us through our email address or through any of the other ways. Uh, you can get in contact with us if you would like to ask him any questions and we'll pass that along. So, Scott, how can listeners find us? You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also, check out our website, www.tropewatches.com, for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatches, and you can tweet or follow us on Instagram at tropewatches. You can also email us at tropewatches at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you rated us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we are your Trope Watchers.